Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This morning we return to our study of the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in this glorious chapter. It's hard to believe that my first sermon on Acts was back in September 12th of 2021. I was 39 years old then, 65 sermons later, and I'm 41. Imagine that. Time flies. But as we enter into Acts chapter 20, I want to take some time to set the stage for us so that we may have a clear picture of where we are headed for the next several weeks. In terms of timing, we are still following Paul's third and final missionary journey which will officially end in chapter 21, verse 17, when he finally arrives uh, in Jerusalem. From then on, the narrative will focus on Paul's journey to Rome and how he will end up in the capital of the empire. But something of great significance is recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. After the riot ended, you remember in Ephesus, Paul departed, says the Bible, for Macedonia, which was north of Ephesus. Then according to verse 2, he went south to Greece where he spent three months, and that's according to verse 3. Why is that significant? It was during those three months in Greece that Paul wrote his most significant theological letter, namely Romans, the book of Romans. In that sense, verse 3 is a type of holy ground. Those three months in Greece got used to bless the church with the most comprehensive summary of the gospel in the Bible, namely the book of Romans. Now after this, Paul's plan was to set sail from Greece straight to Jerusalem. That's where he wanted to go, to Jerusalem. However, his plans changed, and we read in verse 3, Because there was a plot by the Jews to kill Paul, as revealed in verse 3. A long journey through the Mediterranean Sea from Greece to Syria would have been the perfect opportunity for the Jewish enemies of Paul to kill him and to dispose of his body in the ocean. So he decided to make a different route to get to Jerusalem. And he retraced his steps back through Macedonia and then south again through western side of Asia. The summary of those journeys is found in verses 13 through 16 of Acts 20. But while making his way back to Jerusalem, Paul stopped in two cities. Troas, which is mentioned in verse 5, and then Miletus, which is mentioned in verse 17 of Acts 20. The events that took place in those two cities make up the bulk of Acts chapter 20. In Troas, we see the church gather for worship, and the writer of this account, Luke himself, gives us a window into that special moment, that special gathering, including a young man who died. Why? Because Paul preached for too long. He preached for too long. This is in verses 7 through 12. Hopefully that won't happen this morning. In Miletus, we see Paul's 
charge to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And we see that in verses 17 through 38. And that's a summary of Acts chapter 20. A worship service in the city of Troas. And a charge to the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus. Now, I am fully aware that even with that summary, things can be highly confusing. So, um, uh, what I want to do is to boil all of chapter 20 down to what I believe to be its very core. It is one verse. One verse in chapter 20 that I believe is the heart of all of it. This one verse explains everything. Even if we miss many of the details, we cannot afford to miss that one verse. It is not only the heart of Acts 20, but of the entire Bible and of the entirety of the Christian life as a whole. Therefore, I have intentionally grounded all of our study in Acts 20 upon that one verse. Can anybody guess that verse? No one, huh? Grace, you were looking at me kind of weird. Do you know it? Do you know it? No? Randy? Anybody? Okay. Verse 28. Verse 28. As Paul gave his charge to the elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul said this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Every sermon I will preach from Acts chapter 20, including this one, will be rooted in that one verse, especially the very last sentence of that verse. The church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The entire history of the church, the entire writing of the Bible, the entire struggle the apostles went through, the entire conflict in which Christians have participated for thousands of years, the entire missionary endeavor, the entirety of our peace, our hope, our comfort, our message, our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification, our worship, and all of it, everything that can be said to be Christian finds its root, its meaning, its purpose, and its explanation in one thing only, the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot understand Acts chapter 20 or the rest of the book of Acts or the Bible or Christianity or anything else without giving careful thought to the blood that was shed upon the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ. The descendant of Eve who would crush the serpent's head did that by his blood. The central message given to the Israelites through the sacrificial system, was that nothing but blood could grant them forgiveness of sins and peace with God. The church would not exist apart from the blood of the Lamb. In fact, we could even say this, the entire cosmos was created so that the blood of God's Son could flow at Golgotha for the redemption of sinners like you and like me. Therefore, our central theme 
beginning this morning and for the next several weeks will be nothing but the blood. In other words, all the main truths that I will give you in each sermon from Acts chapter 20 will be essentially an expanded exegesis of verse 28. This morning, I will give you the first two plus a bonus one. <laughs> You'll see. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. Nothing but the blood can guarantee the success of Christian missions. Nothing but the blood can guarantee the success of Christian missions. Verses 1 through 6. Let us read it together. After the uproar ceased in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. That's Luke speaking. But we sail away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Even though there are many aspects of this passage that are worthy of our considerations, I want to limit myself to two. The distinct names and the cultural diversity of Paul's companions, both of which have much to teach us concerning the blood of Jesus. Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus. Not much is known about these men, with the exception of Timothy, of course. Their names are not often mentioned, and their, significant is not, their significance is not central to the narrative when compared to the Apostle Paul. And yet their names matter. Their names matter for they represent the power and the victory of the blood of Jesus Christ. These men, Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus are, may mean little to us in the 21st century. But the reason their names appear in the Bible is because their names were known to God from before the foundation of the world. And God so loved them that he gave his only son and put him on a cross for them. God the Father crushed his own son and put him on a cross for them. In order to turn a sinner like Sopater, a forgiven saint. But notice what verse 28 says in no uncertain terms. The blood of Jesus obtained what? The church. The blood of Jesus obtained the church. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Practically speaking, this means that Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus were among those whom Jesus paid for and purchased upon the cross. They were now companions of the Apostle Paul, united with Paul in a common mission because Jesus bought them. Jesus bought them. 
A few decades later, after the death of Jesus, these men came to faith in Christ because of the blood of Jesus. So Jesus obtained the church with his own blood, but this church is made up of individual people like Sopater, like Aristarchus. So Paul could say, for example, Jesus gave himself up for me individually, but also that Jesus gave himself up for the church collectively. Jesus died for Sopater, Jesus died for Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus individually, but they belong to the church collectively. And that's what we see in Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 2, the 3,000 that were baptized and believed were 3,000 that Jesus obtained, that Jesus bought with his own blood. Therefore, they believed. Nothing but the blood saved them. The Samaritans who hear the gospel through Philip and believed in Jesus were also believers because Jesus did what? He purchased them. He bought them with his own blood. The Ethiopian eunuch believed because Jesus purchased him on the cross and with his blood. Saul, the persecutor, became Paul, the apostle, because Jesus bought him. He bought his salvation and his forgiveness upon the cross and by his blood. Cornelius and those of his household also believed. Why? Are you getting the pattern? Because Jesus bought them. He shed his blood to buy them from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light. Lydia believed because Jesus obtained her salvation and therefore she believed. Everyone for whom Jesus died will come to him. That's the point. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to see another passage to show you this in a different line. Turn to John chapter 6 with me. John chapter 6. And I want us to read beginning in verse 37. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Remember what we are considering. The question is this. Why did Sopater, Aristarchus, and the rest become Christians and companions of Paul? Here's the answer from the mouth of Jesus himself. Beginning in verse 37 of John 6, the Lord Jesus said this. All that the Father gives me will what? Come. To me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Will Jesus lose any of the ones he died for? No, no. Does that have anything to do with missions? It has everything to do with missions. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. From those verses, we understand the following. Sopater, Aristarchus, and all the rest were actual people who were given to Jesus by whom? By the Father. By the Father. Every believer is a gift from the Father to the Son. 
given by the Father to the Son. Sopater, we don't know much about him. But he was a gift from the Father to the Son. But Sopater had a problem, right? It is called sin. And no sinner can come to God. In fact, sin deserves death, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Therefore, what did Jesus do? He died. Jesus died for Sopater to pay for his sins and to reconcile him to God. Jesus bought Sopater with his own blood. Notice also their diverse backgrounds. Macedonia and Asia were represented in those names. Gentiles. But isn't this precisely what God told Abraham that would happen? Through Abraham's descendant, the seed of Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. One of the most instructive passages on this is Galatians chapter 3. Please turn there. Galatians chapter 3, and I want us to begin reading verse 7. This is a very instructive portion of Scripture that explains the global work of Jesus Christ in association with the Abrahamic promise. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul said this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How are the nations blessed? Consider with me verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Therefore, the Macedonians and the Asians who were now companions of Paul became Christians because Jesus became a curse for them on the cross first by dying for them. What was promised to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. But notice that it was fulfilled through Jesus becoming a curse, meaning specifically through his death, the shedding of his blood. Therefore, the missionary endeavors of verses 1 through 6 in Acts 20 by Paul and his Gentile companions as they made their way to Troas, those endeavors are the fruit of the, Je the blood of Jesus on the cross. Those people now belong to Christ, and this is Christianity. Their story is our story as well. What is missions? Missions is the ingathering of blood-bought people. So if you look at your bulletin, if you see the insert, you're going to see the names of many of our missionary partners. What are they doing? Why are they on the mission field? Why did we send a team to Guatemala? Why are we here? Why do we do what we do? We are gathering for Christ what belongs to him, what he bought, what he paid for. If you are believing in the Lord Jesus this morning, you are among them. Can there be anything more important to be said about you than this, that you were bought with the blood 
of Jesus and that you belong to him. As the hymn says, we are elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Macedonians, Asians, Greeks, Americans, Chileans, can you believe that? Are now members of the body of Christ and all because of the blood of Jesus. You see, the blood of Jesus guarantees the success of missions for Jesus will get what he paid for. The blood of Jesus guarantees the success of missions for Jesus will get what he paid for. In other words, what we say about the success or failure of the Great Commission, we're also saying about the success or failure of the blood shed on the cross. The question is, will Jesus receive the prize for which he died? An inheritance of nations. What do we say? Amen. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. But as this mission team comes to Troas, we see something else that flows out of Christ's shed blood. Here's another blessing from the blood of Jesus. Here's point number two. Nothing but the blood can create true unity among God's people. Nothing but the blood can create true unity among God's people. Read with me verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Amen to that. <laughs> Notice two things. First, the explicit timing of the meeting. They were gathered together on the first day of the week, meaning on a Sunday, which is the day when Jesus rose from the dead, hence our Sunday meetings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, Paul instructs the church at Corinth and says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. He also mentions the first day of the week as a day of gathering. Early during the 2nd century A.D., uh, so a few decades after the events of Acts, Justin Martyr described the gathering of believers like this, and I quote, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities and in the country gather together to one place, and the writings of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits, end quotes. Why on the first day of the week? Why do we gather on the first day of the week? Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus set the new calendar for the Christian church. I want you to notice second, notice the twofold intention of the meeting. First, they met to break bread and also to hear the word preached. To break bread and to hear the word preached. Now, what is this breaking of bread? Now, the consensus among the commentators that I read is that the breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper rather than just a meal. And what's the Lord's Supper? It reminds us of the blood and the body of Jesus. From the very first 
from the beginning of the Christian church, they were all united upon this one truth that Jesus died for our sins. This is why they gathered. I was talking with someone this week about how Christians don't gather on Sunday mornings to pat each other in the back as if they were here to celebrate how good we have been throughout the week. Not at all. We gather here every Sunday to remind ourselves of that which we are prone to forget, that apart from the blood of Christ, we are all lost in our sins. Things have not changed. This is what we all have in common, my friends. Nothing more, nothing less. And we need nothing more. We need nothing less. Your money, your academic accomplishments, your career, your house, your cars, your bank account, your last name, your nationality, or whatever else you might think of, none of that makes up the core of who you are. At the end of the day, you and I are but sinners saved by blood. And we are here every first day of the week because we tend to forget. The Lord's Supper reminds us of several truths. First, it reminds us that he took, it took the blood of Jesus, it took the blood of Jesus to solve our sin problem. And yes, it was that bad. Second, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we all need the same amount of grace. Jesus didn't die a little less for some and more for others. It was one and the same death, one and the same blood for all of us. Third, it reminds us that we are all equally loved by the Father through the Son. And fourth, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the call to love one another in humility, patience, and sacrifice as Christ loved us. But they also gathered to hear the word preached. It says in verse 7 that Paul talked with them in Troas, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. That's the second time I read that because I want to emphasize it. He prolonged his speech. He prolonged his speech until midnight. Wow. How much time do you have? <laughs> Nervous laughter. I recognize that. Here the Apostle Paul is setting the pattern for the church at large, which we have already seen in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says that the first Christians devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship, fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we know this much. Our brothers and sisters from the first century, they gathered on Sundays, partook of the Lord's Supper, they heard the word preached, they enjoyed fellowship, they prayed together, and they also put money aside for the work of ministry. These were the things on which they were all united, and all because of the blood of Christ. Jesus purchased a people for himself with his own blood, called the church, so that they would be united around him. Everything revolves around the cross on which Christ died. And for centuries upon centuries, Christians have willingly participated in corporate worship like we are doing this morning in order to weekly recenter our lives around Jesus and his cross. And all these things are in and of themselves the work of Jesus himself. Titus chapter 2 
verse 14, says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is creating and building his own church. Therefore, whatever good happens among us and in us is his work and the fruit of his blood shed for us. It is all about the blood. It truly is all about him. So as we live as Christians in this world, and as we gather together the first week, the first day of every week, we need to uh, remind ourselves of a very important truth. So here is the bonus point. Here's the bonus point. Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood can help you get through a long sermon. Nothing but the blood can help you get through a long sermon. Listen to what happened as Paul preached. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at a window sank into deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That was a very eventful worship service. But Paul went down and bent over and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. The first question that I have of this text is this. What is normative here? What is normative here? Long sermons or people falling asleep? <laughs> Which one is normative? Which one is the rule for us to follow? I tend to think long sermons, huh? but that's just me. But probably neither one is the case. I wish this passage had a footnote that said, do not try this at your home church. <laughs> so no, this is not telling pastors to preach long or allowing for young men to fall asleep or guaranteeing a resuscitation in case you fall off your chair, break your neck, and die. If that happens to you, you call 911, not me. Let me point out a few things from this. These Christians did not have a church building. This was likely just a big house, three stories high, and they had, they had no air conditioning or electricity, of course. Lamps filled up the room, sucking up the oxygen, and we can only imagine how stuffy it must have felt. Eutychus was sitting at a window, which was actually a smart move. I was reading Matthew Henry, his commentary on this section, and he was actually very harsh on this young man, saying that he was probably uninterested in what Paul had to say. I don't think so. In fact, him sitting at a window might be evidence of the contrary. Likely, he wanted to stay awake and chose the window to get the breeze to help him fight off sleepiness. But Paul kept on preaching, and he kept on preaching for a long time. Think about it. If the service started around 7 p.m., Paul had been preaching for close to five hours, close to five hours. Now, remember, he was just passing through Troas. This was his one and only opportunity to be, to be with these believers, so he wanted to make it count. But I can only imagine how difficult this must have been for Eutychus. 
We don't know if he had had a long day or what, but after five hours, he couldn't take it any longer, fell into a deep sleep, and took a deadly fall from the third floor and died. Now, who is telling us this story? Luke, and he was a medical doctor. So if he said that Eutychus was dead, he probably was dead. But Paul was an apostle, and he was given miraculous gifts, so he performed his last recorded miracle. He brought the boy back to life, and then, of course, he kept on preaching, because that's what you do when someone dies during the worship service. You keep on preaching. Now, let me give you a few lessons embedded here that we should pay attention to. First, here's the first lesson. Those charged with preaching the word must do so with a sense of urgency. Those charged with preaching the word must do so with a sense of urgency. Paul always preached with a sense of urgency. He wasn't Paul the entertainer. He was Paul the apostle. His calling was not to keep people awake but to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. He wasn't driven by a culture of entertainment, but of truth. Sadly, there are many churches today who have chosen to build almost their entire ministry upon entertainment rather than truth. And they are sacrificing faithful doctrinal teaching for the sake of keeping people engaged or awake. Notice how after Eutychus fell to his death, Paul didn't say to himself, well, I need to work on my sermon delivery skills so that people won't die of boredom. No, in fact, he brought him back to life and he kept on preaching even longer. Paul wasn't offended. The event did not distract him from his calling. But from this, we also learn another lesson. Here's another lesson for all of us. Those called to sit under the preaching of God's word must not grow weary those called to sit under the preaching of God's word must not grow weary. As Christians, we must remind ourselves that we gather here not for the entertainment of our senses, but for the redemption of our souls. It seems like Eutychus was the exception in this room. Apparently, most people were gripped by the realities Paul was presenting to them through his preaching. It was more precious to them than sleep brothers and sisters if we will be like our first century brothers and sisters we must fight to keep these spiritual realities at the forefront of our minds and of our hearts thinking deeply about anything is becoming increasingly harder in an age of instant gratification we live in the age of video shorts they are literally made for your quick consumption. One click for just a few seconds and you are done. This is detrimental to the call of Christianity. We must teach, teach ourselves the art of profound meditation and being alone with God and his word. Train yourself to say no to your phone, to your TV, to your computer, and make intentional time to be alone with God and his word. The only way for spiritual realities to grip your heart and your mind is if you protect yourself from those things that are instant and mindless. If you are not delighting in spiritual realities and exercises, could it be because you are allowing yourself to be delighted by instant gratifiers? That is an important question that we must answer in our time. We must fight weariness through daily meditation. We must remind ourselves constantly 
that the most important truth about us is that we were bought with a price, namely the blood of Jesus, and that our most important occupation in life is to learn what that means for every day. That's the heart of not growing weary. And related to this and the third and final lesson that I want to draw from this, we must all watch for spiritual sleepiness. We must all watch for spiritual sleepiness or lethargy. Beware lest you become a spiritual Eutychus. By that I mean this, those who drift away from the word of God, especially the word preached, do so at their own peril. If you drift away long enough from the instruction of God's word, it can lead to death. I believe those who deconstruct their faith and eventually walk away at some point stopped caring about the instruction of God's word. And slowly but surely, they became lethargic and finally gave it up. Do not become spiritually lethargic. Remember whose you are and the price that was paid for your redemption. Jesus bought us with his own blood. This is who we are. Let us live like it. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this gentle, timely, relevant reminder that everything that we do as Christians individually and as a church collectively, everything from coming to church, prayer, reading the Bible, growing as believers, sharing the gospel, going on mission trips, and whatever else, it is all a blessing that flows from the blood of Jesus Christ. For he purchased, he obtained, he bought us with his blood. So let us Father, help us never to forget that we have been bought, that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price. We belong to the body of Jesus and that him we must serve. So as a church, may the cross of Jesus remain at the center of everything we do. And may all things be done to his glory and his glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.